Welcome to Dem Talks, our stories, our voices, created by the Dementia Carers Campaign Network, a carer advocacy group supported by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. I'm your host, Judy Williams, and when I'm not podcasting, I'm an advocacy engagement and participation officer at the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, and I look after the Dementia Carers Campaign Network, known as the DCCN. The topic of our episode today is delivery of a diagnosis, and I'm delighted to welcome Tony McIntyre and Alison McCarthy, who are members of the Dementia Research Advisory Team. Tony is also a member of our Dementia Carers Campaign Network, and both groups are supported by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. I'm delighted also to welcome Una Crawford O'Brien, whose partner Brian is living with dementia, and Matthew Gibb, Director of Dementia Services Information and Development Centre, which is based at St James's Hospital in Dublin. You're all very welcome today, and I'm going to come to you first, Tony and Alison. So, Tony, I know you support your wife, Mary, who's living with dementia, and I've had the pleasure of meeting you both before. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about Mary and maybe something about your life together? Yeah, Mary, I met Mary in London in uh, the Hibernian Club. It was an Irish dance hall and uh, we came back to Ireland and got married in Ireland. And we had our first son then, Barry, uh, actually he was born in Mullingar. Then I wanted to get into computers and I couldn't get into it in Ireland. So we emigrated to Canada and we spent four and a half, nearly five years in Canada. And during that time, Fiona was born in Canada and I was in computers. So we came back to Ireland then and uh, we had two more children in Ireland and we've lived in Dublin ever since. Uh, so we've had a, a great life together. Uh, Mary was highly intelligent and she was a hairdresser. She ran a, uh, when I met her first, she ran a hairdressing salon in London at a, the age of probably 18. Wow. And um, she was always up to date with everything that went on and current affairs and stuff like that. So that's, I suppose, in a, a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Mary and I are alive so far. And Tony, you mentioned living in London with Mary. Did did you meet Mary in London? Yes, I went to London when I was 18. And uh, when I was 21, I went into this dance hall, an Irish dance hall. Now, I had been going to it every week, but uh, I saw Mary out dancing. And um, I said, that's my girl. Oh, <laughs> wow. And the place was packed because Sean Dunphy was a singer there who turned out to be a great pop star here in Ireland later on. And uh, when the dance was over, I couldn't find her on the floor. So I went in and searched uh, into where the had minerals and all that. It was a big bar and I searched there and I couldn't see her. And then I went back out and looked up on the balcony and she was up there sitting with her sister. And I looked up and her sister waved down at me. So I was going up to ask Mary out for a dance and they got up and I met them halfway down the stairs. The rest and that is was history. it. <laughs> I, I said to Mary, will you dance? And, uh, she was 18, I was 21 at that time. So oh. we've um, been together ever since. So we lived in London for a couple of years. Then we came back to Ireland, as I said, and we've been to Canada and we go away on holidays every year and we've had a great life and we still have. Lovely. Thank you for sharing that with us. And that's really interesting, as you say, living in London, living in Canada, but ending up now back in Ireland. And you say there you had a great life and you still have a great life, yeah. which is really lovely to hear. And can you tell us a little bit about your life now with Mary? 
Well, our life now, one good, Mary was always highly intelligent. I'm sorry I never got her to do uh, an IQ test because she was highly intelligent. And the great thing about her is she's always in good form. Now, you might say, oh, well, she must be in bad form. Sometimes she's never in bad form. No matter what I say to her, if I give out to her anything, she's still in good form. And, you know, over the last three years, she stopped cooking. So I had to learn how to cook. <laughs> but lucky enough, it's in the family. So I, uh, my mum is a great cook. And well, I suppose everybody's mother is a great cook. But my mum worked professionally in London as a cook. Oh. And um, her sister had a cafe as well. So it's in the family. So thank God I'm, I've turned out to be a good cook oh, after good a couple of years. So I hate a cook and now I like it. Brilliant. Um, and Mary was great at gardening, but she, if I go out with her, she'll, she'll garden all right and, and do stuff. But she's no idea now on what flowers should be replaced. And so I'm learning the gardening now. And last year, some of the neighbours asked me twice. Two neighbours came and asked me, did I want the lawn cut? Because I had it, part of it had burnt on me. I didn't know what was wrong with it. But now this year we have it looking really good. So I'm learning gardening now. Good so as Mary you. misses out on stuff, I take up where I can. So it means that we're having a good life. With the help of the Alzheimer's Society, I might say, Mary goes to the daycare centre twice a week. And uh, that's been a tremendous help. So that's we're still happy in our, in our lives. Well, that's really good to hear. And I know you say she's missing out, but she's getting to eat your lovely cooked meals and yeah. getting to see the flowers you're planting, etc. And it's lovely to hear that you do so many things together. I yes, know I've met you and Mary a number of times and she's a beautiful person uh, inside and out, I think, from from yeah. what you say. But um, yeah. and Tony, following Mary's diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in 2015, you both got involved in advocacy work and in research. Can you tell me why you made that decision? Yes, when Mary was diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's, it put a cloud over our heads. We didn't know what to do. And we were a long time like that. And then the doctor recommended that we contact Joanne Brennan and the Alzheimer's Society. And we contacted Joanne at that time and it lifted the cloud off our heads. It was sunny again and things worked out. And Mary got involved in the advocacy work with the Alzheimer's Society Ireland and she got involved in different groups. Then when the COVID came along, uh, she wasn't good on computers and because of my background, I would help her. So gradually I got started getting involved in the Alzheimer's Society and we learned so much and we got so much out of the Alzheimer's Society Ireland and being part of the research advisory team. And then initially, I suppose, with the public personal involvement, because we got involved with uh, stuff like um, with a lot of the universities around Ireland in, in research that they were doing into music. Uh, sometimes it might be into different things, walking, uh, art. Uh, we did one where they were working about all the electronic devices that people use at home and how it helps uh, people with dementia. And we were, they were working out exactly what were the best ones that they should use. And during that, I found out about bits of equipment that I hadn't been using and that I could use. So the personal public involvement uh, was great for us. And, and we learned a lot and we tried to give as much back as we can. 
That's excellent. So as you say, there's a bit of give and take there because you're giving a lot back and yet you're learning along the way. So well done to you both for for getting involved so much. Um, thanks, Tony. And Alison, you care for your mother, also called Mary, just to confuse things today. <laughs> different, <laughs> uh, Marys. different Marys. And your mom, your mother was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease in 2014. Can you tell me a little bit about your mother? My mom was diagnosed when I was 19. And before that, for years, she worked as a, a legal secretary uh, in Limerick. So she was working in one of the, as far as I'm aware, one of the first computerized offices in Limerick. So she was just always like so full of life and, you know, really, really good at typing, but not that good with technology. Like really good, can type a crazy amount of words a second or a minute, um, talk to you and dictate a whole thesis but try to change the TV uh, channel on TV. And she's like, what is this? Um, But she was always like really lively, like bubbly person, the hostess with the mostest kind of kind of a woman and loved traveling and just exploring new places. Like by the time I was seven, we'd been to Australia, Malaysia, South Africa, Florida, and Australia was booked on the way home from the hospital. So they were very uh, ambitious and um, kind of spur of the moment people. And I guess these days, unfortunately, the Alzheimer's has kind of come on quite quickly, I guess, in the last 10 years. So I would say my mom's currently in the late stages of Alzheimer's um, and she's no longer verbal and no longer able to kind of do things for herself. But yet every now and then that like vivacious and funny woman still appears she always says yes and no at the best times. Mm. So it's great when I'm like, Dad, Mom says no, because it's very loud and it's very prominent. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Lovely description. And uh, your mom lives at home with your dad? Is that your mom? Sorry, lives at home with yeah, your dad? Yeah, yeah. Ma- so mom still lives at home with dad. So during kind of coming up to the pandemic and once I finished college, so between 2017, I guess, and 2022, I was at home all the time with them and I would have been very much the secondary the secondary carer and a lot of tag teaming was done before we were able to get proper home support and especially during the pandemic so me and my dad would pass each other in the night but um it's great to to have her at home and we're able to like with the help of the society and everything and the knowledge that we've gotten from working with the society we're able to have her at home and to get the support that we need because we we know where to look. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does everything with us. She comes everywhere with us. We've just come back from my sister's wedding. So oh, she was a huge part of that in her own way. Again, during the speeches, very prominent, very definite acknowledgements of like, yeah, we were awesome. And you should like my sister talking about her, her and her husband um, are ambitious and like they love traveling. They get that. Part of that comes from my parents and immediately my my mom had like an affirmative response and you're just there like, yep, we did that. That's lovely. She sounds like a really interesting person (laughs) and both your parents with all that travel, etc. Thanks so much, Alison, for sharing that with us. And I know, Alison and Tony, you are both members of the Dementia Research Advisory Team, which is supported by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Alison, can you tell me a little bit about the group? Yeah, so it's a group made up of people like my 
myself and Tony who are family carers um, and also people who are living with dementia. So we kind of get together, you know, depending on what we're doing, maybe at least once a month. And then if we're working on a particular project, um, we do video calls maybe every couple of weeks just to make sure that project keeps moving. But um, it's great because you get so many different ideas and like different experiences because obviously Tony's experience and how he sees um, dementia and like what's required is very, very different from my own experience and not only from like backgrounds and everything, but our ages. So that's a really big thing. I joined the Dementia Research Advisory team during the pandemic because I saw it on Instagram (laughs) and I was like, this is something I need to do because it's people like myself and Tony that are and everyone else in the group, the people living with dementia who are able to contribute, who are going to help make the change. And my voice matters. The diversity of the group, I think, really helps Mm -hmm. because I think one thing and as soon as someone maybe like Tony says, no, that's not that doesn't count for me. That's not our experience. Then it grows organically and that can really help researchers to find the right question to ask. And that helps with finding the answer that works. Okay, that's great. Um, And it sounds like you do an awful lot of work when you say you're meeting every month, etc. That's a lot of work. So well done to you. And Tony, the Dementia Research Advisory team recently decided to create your own research project. Can you tell us the title of your research and why you chose to do this research? Yeah, we were involved with the uh, personal public involvement and we were involved with other researchers and we decided that we should do our own research. And then we did, we looked at various items we should uh, research. And the one that came down, everybody or most people said would be the most important was how the, the care and the person is diagnosed. What's the impact that that has on them at that particular meeting? And we decided then how, what were the consequences and how could we improve it? Now, for some of us, I suppose for doctors or for specialists, they are used to giving diagnosis to people. So they're not heavily involved in the emotional end of it and, and all of that. Whereas say somebody like myself mm-hmm. or, or Alison uh, going into a meeting for the first time with a doctor, not expecting to be told about your your uh, my wife in this case having uh, Alzheimer's and it'd been a total shock and leaving the meeting and not knowing what to do. Uh, that that was uh, very, very emotional and important for us. And what we've decided, what we uh, the, the survey that we did said, first of all, that the room that we go into with the uh, consultant, whether it's a consultant or a doctor or a specialist for the very first meeting, it should be a nice room where there's no noise and where maybe there's somebody else there as well with them. And also the other part we came up with is that the person who is being diagnosed should have a carer or someone with them as well within the same room so that there are two people at least getting the information because it's very easy to pick up the wrong information on, on at a meeting and go out. And I suppose to me, out of all the survey was, we felt that another meeting should be 
brought out within 10 days of that original meeting. Okay. Now, that to me would have been made a huge difference to me if that had, because we would be able to ask questions. You know, all these questions were floating around our heads and we didn't know who to ask. We would have been able to do that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing then was that there should be um, uh, some support afterwards. So m- maybe w- w- with doctors or specialists or something like that, that if they could have support. And also the tone of the meeting was going to be very important because some people found it very difficult to maybe uh, interact with the person given the diagnosis because the tone of the meeting was wrong. Okay. So th- these were the things that we were um, that we came up with. And the other thing would be that uh, maybe I've said this already, that there'd be other uh, multidisciplinary uh, actions that we could go to after that. And I suppose the last one would be to like, what's all the support that's there? Because if I had known that the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland could give so much support, it would have it would have made such a difference. And when I did contact them initially, after a half an hour, it changed our lives. Mm. So this is the, the result of ours. Now, we have sent this for uh, to a doctor, mm-hmm. th- these seven points that we had to see what the doctor's uh, comments are on that. And that will be the next part of our research. And then we'll bring it on further and then we will release it to everybody so that all people who are being uh, diagnosed with dementia at least will have all these guidelines to help them along. That's wonderful work. So, yes. And, and Tony, would you be able to tell us the title of your research? Uh, the impact the diagnosis of dementia has on the person who becomes the family uh, care. So it's the impact that it had on me or yes. the impact that it had on Alice and people who okay. go. So so not only on the person receiving the diagnosis, but on the family unit as well. Oh, yeah, the, it, it the affects carers the whole and family. Yeah, it's a yeah. really important point and yeah. it sounds like fantastic research yeah. you're doing. So thanks for explaining that, Tony. And Alison, would you be able to tell us just a few of the findings of your research so far? I think Tony covered quite a lot of it there, but um, <laughs> it's kind of through the the data collection, we were able to discover that, as Tony has mentioned, that um, it's about the delivery of the diagnosis and that people require a little bit more care, especially with something like dementia, where there's not a lot that can be done medically after a diagnosis. There are some treatments out there and there are some... Um, things that kind of fall more under psychological. So like some anxiety medications are used, but that just people need to remember that you're not just diagnosing a person, you're diagnosing a unit. Yeah. So we did a lot of work with that focus groups, uh, interviews and surveys outside of our own kind of DRAT bubble. Um, and I'm sorry, just to explain, DRAT is the... Oh, Dementia, Dementia Research Advisory Team. Yeah. Um, and so through that, we were able... It, it became really obvious that healthcare professionals needed to be guided by the experience of people who are actually affected by the dementia diagnosis. So uh, the output of our work has come to say that GPs and healthcare professionals um, to need to refer to the document which we are going to create, um, which will guide them in how to approach the situation with a little bit more kindness and a little less medical, like this is my fourth diagnosis of the day. Mm-hmm. This changes someone's life forever. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're really looking forward to being able to share all of the findings when we've completed the the document. 
Fantastic. And Alison, from your experience caring for your mother and from the research that the Dementia Research Advisory Team has done, would you be able to give us some advice that you would have for healthcare professionals if there's any listening in? Um, I think I kind of said it there. It's you're also diagnosing a family. And I think it's funny. My biggest memory actually comes from before the diagnosis. So a lot of people, because I was 16 when I when symptoms started for my mom and I was saying, like, I think something's wrong. A lot of people kind of uh, teachers and things were kind of like, sure, if this is happening, think how scared she is. And I was there like, no, this is happening to her. Like, she doesn't really understand what's happening, but I think something's wrong. And that's the same, I would say, to any healthcare professionals, especially from my point of view, is that when you're young, you're kind of taught things might happen to your grandparents. But no matter what age you are, you don't expect that to be your partner. In Tony's case, you don't expect that to be your parent. So when you're sitting in front of someone, it they don't even have to be a, a young adult or something. It, it doesn't matter if the person is 16 or 60. When you're sitting there and you're being told that your parent or your partner who you've been looked after or you know traveled the world with together is being diagnosed and you're just getting medical fact after fact and like sent out a, a clinical door and told find your own way now that I'd say that medical professionals like imagine that it's you being told this and what information would you want to be given because like Tony if someone had handed me and my dad documents from the Alzheimer's Society and said contact the um, dementia working group, which started the year my mom was or the year before my mom was diagnosed, that could have made all the difference. Mm -hmm. But we we didn't have that. Okay. Um, So, yeah, just imagine that it's you getting this diagnosis and what would you want, even if it's the 10th diagnosis or the 10th interview of the day? It's a person sitting at the other end of that table. Okay, that's really good advice. And and actually, you mentioned obviously they're the Irish Dementia Working Group, and I know both of you are members of the Dementia Research Advisory Team, and Tony's also a member of our Dementia Cares Campaign Network. So you're certainly involved very heavily with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, and I know Alison, you do some fundraising as well, and so like. Fair play to you doing all of that. And Tony, you mentioned earlier that the helpline, when you rang the helpline, you used a lovely phrase earlier. You said it changed your life and that was really lovely to hear. So I think it's a good time for us to give out the number of the helpline, which is 1-800-341-341. So thanks so much, Alison and Tony, for sharing all of that information with us. Hi, Una. Thanks for joining us today. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will recognise your name and your voice from Fair City. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and about your work? I joined Fair City in 1998 and it was one of the most exciting days of my life. I'd always wanted to be an actress ever since I was very, very young. But my mother said, get a good pensionable job. (laughs) So I finished the Leaving Cert on on a Tuesday afternoon and I started in an insurance company on the Wednesday morning. She was that determined I'd go into a job. So I did and I taught speech and drama for a number of years in between times working in the insurance company and then I went on to a solicitor's office and I was the receptionist there. But I always, I always wanted to be an actress and I was, I was uh, part of a drama group for years and years and I would do five, six plays a year. 
So it was kind of inevitable. So about 1993, 94, I decided, right, I'll give it a go. And um, I got a play and then I got another play. And then I thought, OK, I'll give it a few years. And if nothing happens, I'll go back to being a happy amateur. But thankfully it did. And I got Fair City in 1998 and I have loved every minute of it. Mm, that's fantastic. And would you say you have a preference for stage or television or do you like them both equally? Love them both because they're very different. Um, on stage, the adrenaline is there. You're terrified going out before a live audience. And if you make a mistake, there's nothing you can do. You've just got to keep going. If you <laughs> fluff, you've got to keep going. If you forget, you've got to keep going. So... Um, I love that part of it and the the feeling of the audience out there. It's just thrilling. But then with television or film, and I haven't done a lot of film, but television, it's calmer in a way, even though in Fair City we record four episodes a week, which is frantic, which is nearly two hours a week. And um, that's a lot of learning to do. Yeah. And we work very hard, but it's so enjoyable. Brilliant. Love it. That's great. And lovely that you ended up doing something you love so much. Yes. And then the added bonus of it is, I believe that you met Brian, Brian Murray, at work on Fair City. And Brian is your partner in real life. And I know that also your characters are in a relationship in Fair City. So can you tell us a little bit about meeting Brian and about working together? He joined the company in 2005 and um, I didn't know Brian. I actually knew his brother. So I was disappointed when I heard it was Brian that was coming in and <laughs> playing the part. And uh, I was sitting knitting. This is his, his memory of me coming in. I was sitting knitting in a, in a rocking chair, which was Eunice's, my mother-in-law's. And he thought, who's this one sitting in the rocking chair? But we started talking and we talked, talked, talked. And we haven't stopped talking since. And he made me laugh. And I was going through... A difficult divorce, which was long drawn out. And there wasn't a lot of laughter in my life at that stage. And he brought it back into it. So it was it was just lovely. Oh, that's lovely. And thanks for sharing that. That's a lovely memory for you. It is lovely. And also, I think there's a nice story around the name of your dog. Maybe you'd tell us about that. <laughs> well, Brian is is Bob Charles in Fair City. And um, when Brian was 70, I decided I would buy him a dog. We hadn't discussed it. There was no um, preconceived ideas of we'd be lovely with the dog. But I knew at this stage that Brian had Alzheimer's and uh, knowing the power of animals with people, um, I thought this might be a good thing. So I surprised him with oh. the little puppy and he absolutely madly fell in love and he called him Bob after his character. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> so when he goes out walking and he's shouting Bob and I'm shouting Bob <laughs> and people are looking at us going, there's Bob and Renee. So <laughs> That's gas. Oh, that's lovely. And lovely that Brian loves the dog so much. Absolutely. And as you said there, Brian was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and I think that was four years ago. 2019. 2019. So how did Brian's diagnosis change life for him and for you? It was, I suppose it's been a gradual change and now it's escalated somewhat. We were very much a team. We were very much 50-50 and now 
Now I'm the one who calls the shots, who has to decide things. He will look to me. He he can get panicked. and But if he sees me and he knows that I know what I'm doing, he's fine. And that has changed completely. Um, it's... It's become a more stressful relationship, needless to say, because I'm the one with the stress. He has none. And that's great Mm. because he's quite happy. If he knows I'm around, he'll be fine. Whereas I spend my life worrying now. And I wasn't a worrier before. Yes. Now I am. I can understand that. Yeah. But he's still working. Yeah. And he has no intention of giving it up anytime soon. We were in uh, Fair City there a couple of weeks ago. And now in the morning, he said he wasn't going in. It was just one of those things. Sometimes the mood isn't always the best. So he decided he wasn't going in. So I was about to argue with him and tell him he had to go in. And then I thought, no, I'll leave it for half an hour. And after about a half an hour, I said to him, you've got to get ready now. And he said, for what? To go into Fair City. Oh, grand. Fine. So we went in and he had a great day. And I said to him at the end, because he was tired, I said, you know, would you think about giving it up? Give it up. (laughs) Are you mad? This is my life. Why would I give it up? (laughs) So, no. Oh, that's great. And I know he did a play recently in the Peacock Theatre and you supported him through that. Could you tell us a little bit about that? He did two plays this year. Two plays. He did um, Deirdre Kinnahan, Dee Kinnahan. We were doing a play of hers called Halcyon Days and... That was when I noticed that Brian wasn't retaining his lines the way he was. And I was trying to, it didn't occur to me that he had Alzheimer's. I just thought he's not trying as hard. So I was giving him all kinds of tips, how to to remember the lines. And then I realised, no, this was more than that. My mother had had Alzheimer's and I recognised the signs. So when Brian and I was diagnosed, uh, then we had COVID. So the play was put on hold anyway. But they had dates that had to be fulfilled. So after COVID finished, we started to rehearse and I knew Brian was just not capable of doing this. So we approached Deirdre and we explained to her because he absolutely loved the play. We both did. It was just a joy to do. And Deirdre said, I'll write a play for him. And I thought, she hasn't heard what I said. He cannot learn lines. And she said, no, I'll write a play for him. So she did. And her idea was that he would carry the script. The Abbey came on board and they wanted to produce it, co-produce it. And they got this wonderful young man called Matthew Malone to play um, Brian's character as a young man. So there were the two of them on stage. And then the director, Louise Lowe, she decided she would use an earpiece for Brian. So he was fed all his lines by another actor, Mark Feely. And because he lost the script, it was taken away from it. Also, he lost his independence in some ways because he didn't know to walk down stage right, then stage left, to sit down. He didn't know any of those things. But Matthew then became his guide and guided him around the stage. So he knew and it gave a poignancy to the play that it didn't have before. And it was a huge success. It was booked out before he even went into it. So I was his PA. I was his very personal, personal assistant <laughs> for the time. And um, and that was hard going in a way because every night he'd say, where are we going? Why are we going? And every night he went on stage and it was the first night from every night. Mm-hmm. 
And then we, the two of us did a play called Love Letters that we had done about 13 or 14 years ago. We did it in the Viking in Clontarf and it was a play that we could read. So it in itself, though, had a few problems that we hadn't seen. He would see some of my lines and like them. So he'd decide he'd say them. <laughs> so I'd have to talk over him. And, uh, but he loved it every night. He just, he just loves it. He loves, you know, being there performing. And as our executive producer, Bridget DeCourcy in Fair City said, if you cut him in half, it would say actor all the way through. <laughs> and that's true. That's a lovely description, isn't it? Isn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, a very appropriate play that you did together then, Love Letters. And the name <laughs> of the other play, and I, I actually saw the other play, it was an old song, Half Forgotten, wasn't yes. it? It was absolutely beautiful. And you definitely wouldn't have known that there was, you know, Brian, uh, Brian was using an earpiece or anything. I know, it, it was, was seamless. Mm. I mean, some people didn't know at the end of the play, mm. still didn't know. Yeah. And in a way, I wondered, should they have been told? Because... Um, Dara did such a brilliant job delivering the lines into Brian's ear. Mm. He had listened to Brian when Brian was using the script. He had picked up on his intonations. So he was able to feed Brian Mm. the lines, knowing how Brian would say them. So it was real teamwork. Mm. Yeah, fantastic though, really, really. And it was, as I say, an absolutely fantastic night. So well done to both of you and everybody involved. So also, Una, how would you say life has changed for you and Brian since you publicly revealed Brian's diagnosis? I think it was last August, in August 22. In very many respects, it has become easier. Okay. Because to come out for an actor to say, I can't remember the lines, I have Alzheimer's, you think that's the end of his career, that he's never going to act again. And when I first met Brian, I knew that acting was the first love of his life. It was up there. I was way back. (laughs) (laughs) So I was even afraid to say it to him originally. And when I did say it, uh, I did choose um, a beach, Cahar Daniel in County Kerry. There was nobody on it. It was February. It was a bright sunny day. And I thought if he roars and shouts at me, nobody leer him. It's grand. But he didn't. And he went and was diagnosed. But he was private about it Mm. and he didn't want to say anything and you don't go in and tell them that you've Alzheimer's because he might be written out of the script immediately. You're afraid of that. So we kept it under wraps. Now people began to notice that there was a problem but when it finally came out which was I think it was really uh, Keys to My Life the programme on television that really made it public it was a relief Because people now understood if he was asking the same questions, if he was making mistakes, if he wasn't remembering things, there was a reason for it. And that made life a little bit easier. And people are very understanding. And if I could say anything to people who have been recently diagnosed with it is do say it. There's ways of working around it. Look at him. He's done two plays this year. He's in Fair City still. There are ways of working around it. So it's 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 not the the end of the world. That's a really good point. And as you say, like certainly as was shown in the play with the earpiece, there's there's lots of other innovative ways Mm. as well now of dealing with it. So that's fantastic and very brave of you both to go public. But as you say, it was it was the right thing to do for you both. It was. Yeah. That's great. And Una, talking about Brian receiving the diagnosis, everybody's experience of receiving a diagnosis is different. But do you think there are certain aspects of the delivery of a dementia diagnosis that could be improved by the health professionals who are delivering that diagnosis? Delivering 
I'm not so sure because it's it's a very hard thing to do at the best of times. Um, they did say that Brian had, uh, what was the words they used? Mild cognitive impairment. And he clung to that for a very long time. He didn't have Alzheimer's. He had mild cognitive impairment. So I suppose it was an easy way of telling him and a, a good way. What I would find difficult with the professionals is that when they see the person with dementia, they speak only to them, in my experience. They don't talk to the people who live with them, who look after them, who are there with them, who are attending to their needs. And I've sat behind Brian on so many occasions, shaking my head when he has said something, going, that didn't happen. That didn't, nobody said that. Because you can't give a false impression either. It has to be the truth. And I think that's where the professionals need to look at it. That's from my my. Yeah point of view. No, I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. So it's it's a good point. And if there are any professionals listening, hopefully that's a nice little pointer for them on that. Because mm. I'm sure from their point of view, as we'll hear from Matthew now, it is difficult to give a diagnosis, but it's very, very difficult to receive it. So, mm. you know, I mean, he came away from it and he was fine. I wasn't. Mm. I'd heard Alzheimer's. My mother had Alzheimer's. My grandmother had dementia. So I knew what the path held. And I was terrified, whereas he was fine. And that was okay too. Okay, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? As you say, it, it's the whole unit. It's everybody who's involved in, mm. in that person's life, as it were. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for that, Una. So look, we just want to thank you so much, Una, for coming in and giving up your time. And it's been lovely to talk to you and to hear about your life and all the best to you and to Brian. Thank you. And we're going to chat now to Matthew, Matthew Gibb. And Matthew, we've known each other for quite a while now, I think. A good few years now, yeah. good few years. <laughs> I think our first meeting was probably at a dementia cafe in, in Donnybrook. But I know you've been involved in many, many aspects of supporting people affected di- by dementia. Would you like to tell us about your work? Yeah, I'm a I'm a social worker by profession. Um, I've been in Ireland since about, uh, about 2003 and I've been working I was working with people with dementia before that in the UK for a little while at the beginning of my career. But um, when I moved to Ireland, um, I arrived in St. James's and was working in the memory clinic there for for, for many years um, until about five years ago. Um, but as my role in the memory clinic, I was a senior social worker. So part of my job was 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 sitting in that room, giving diagnoses to people um, and trying to support people with that information and that, that, that knowledge that they gained that day. Um, and I suppose tried so they didn't fall into the same kind of traps that, that your, your uh, mother and your, your wife fell into um, in those situations. Um, we tried to make people um, give them enough information going out the door. We tried to show compassion and humanity um, when we're delivering such, such big news for people and life-changing news. Um, in the memory clinic St. James's, we've, when I first started there back, as I said, back in about 2003, there wasn't any, there wasn't any structure there. There was, you know, we were literally kind of developing this as we went along. Um, and I think probably around about, it probably took about 10 years to kind of coalesce into something, into something that, that kind of resembles um, the blueprint that, that, that Tony's just presented there from, from, from Drat. 
um, you know, where, where we have two people in a room, uh, you know, two professionals in a room at the same time. We have we always try and have a family member there. Um, if, of course, if the person with dementia is, is allowing that because it's their private information at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, 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 we try and we try and follow all of those. But as I said, it's kind of grown up organically and we've kind of developed that over time. And I think the nice thing about this, and I've seen the I've seen the, the, the DRAT study um, presented uh, quite recently uh, an Alzheimer's Society research research do. And um, it was nice to listen to that because we felt it mapped very closely onto the work that we've been doing as well with the um, with the dementia model of care for Ireland. I think it's it's reassuring for us mm-hmm. to have done that work and then to see it mapped so closely onto the work that you know that, that you, uh, the carers and people with dementia, have uh, have, have said as well. So it's uh, it's yeah, it's good. It's oh, good. That's great. I'm sure that's nice for you to hear, yes, Tony and Alison. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and Matthew, you mentioned there that you're often in the room with the person receiving the diagnosis and maybe a family member. If there's somebody living at home whose loved one has just been diagnosed with dementia and maybe didn't get as much information as they should have or whatever, what would your advice advice be for that family? I think don't panic, I think is the main thing. Don't panic. Um, there is help out there, um, I think. You just got to know where to look, and that's that's part that has been a problem up till now. Um, but you can't go far wrong by contacting the Alzheimer's Society helpline. I think, I think Tony put, gave a really nice phrase there about the, you know, when he contacted the Alzheimer's Society, you know, a cloud lifted, and you know, yeah. and suddenly you, could, you you started to see clearly about, you know, at least some sort of pathway that you could take. Yes, um, and that's I think that that would definitely one one bit of advice. Um, but seek out that information. It won't come to you, um, you know, if you just sit there and do nothing. You need to go out and look for that information. Um, but there's, as I said, the Alzheimer's Society is a great starting point. Um, but there's other organisations as well. Um, I think a, a lot of like Family Carers Island, for example, will probably point you in the right direction as well. Mm. You can always approach, um, I think, any of the memory clinics, I think, around the country would be happy enough to, to at least point you in the right direction. They might not be able to bring you in and, you know, and spend a lot of time with you, but I'm sure they'd take a phone call from from people quite happily. Um, so there are there's a good lot of expertise out there. You just it's it's a matter of just finding it. And that, mm-hmm. that's that's difficulty. And I hope I hope that, the, you know, for example, the dementia model of care will go some way to address some of that, some of those issues. Um, or you can contact us either with the I stopped. I stopped. I, I, I still see patients every once in a while, but um, I, I manage the service in the memory clinic now rather than spend a lot of time on the shop floor. But um, uh, in my in my other role as, as as working for the Dementia Services Information and Development Centre, we provide a lot of information and advice um, both to health and social care professionals and to the public as well. And uh, and our website's got uh, a lot of information on it, and that's one. That's plug great. it too much, but it's dementia.ie. No, no. But, uh, <laughs> no, thank you. I was just going to say it'd be great to give out that. Mm. So sorry, dementia.ie. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And this, the, a lot of the information that you find, information booklets on, uh, on, on most of the major conditions, they're all in, uh, have all been through kind of plain English re- rewrites. So they're very accessible for, for, I think, for most members of the public, even though they were written primarily for professionals to give out at, at, at memory clinic type scenarios. But um, we just think it's really important that people get that kind of information, um, that they they they're given some idea of what's ahead of them and where they can go to get help. So all our documents all have the contact details for the Alzheimer's Society, for example, on them. 
um, because they're a fantastic organization, as you know, Judy. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, they've, I'm sure they've dug a lot of people out of a lot of holes over the years, you know. That's great. Thanks, Matthew. That's great advice. And actually, you know, talking about you, you mentioned there that a lot of your leaflets are geared towards the healthcare professional initially. So for healthcare professionals giving a diagnosis and Alison just gave us some excellent advice on that as well. But would you add to that? Is there something you'd like to add to that advice? Or do you have a particular strategy as a professional when you're supporting a dementia diagnosis? You've got to pre- approach everybody as, as an individual for starters. No one's story is exactly the same to mm-hmm. somebody else's. Um, I think you've also it's really helpful to put, try and put yourself, it's really difficult, but try and put yourself in, in that person's shoes to try and get some idea of what, what they're going through, what kind of emotions or feelings they might be having about what they're going through and what, what kind of needs they might have. Um, and even if you are on that we rarely do 10. I don't think I've ever done 10 a day. I think six is my maximum. Um, but six diagnosis, you know, even by the time you're doing the sixth one, you, you know, you can be feeling very burnt out, but you still have to make that effort. But for health professionals have a, have a um, they have, they have in, when they're in those positions, they have one major advantage. They know what's coming, mm. you know. Um, I think they should be, they should be preparing properly as Tony was saying, having having somewhere like a, a you know a, a quiet space to deliver the diagnoses. These are not bedside diagnoses. You can't do that. That's completely out of order to do that. They should be done in in, in proper circumstances and in in nice quiet environments where people aren't going to be disturbed. They should have the professionals should have um, they should have their time protected, so that they shouldn't be having you know the phones shouldn't be ringing while you're in there. Bleep shouldn't be going off. Making sure you know the story. So reading the notes. You know, there's nothing worse than sitting there with a family and the doctors leafing backwards and forwards through the notes, trying to figure out what they're they're supposed to be saying, you know, that it just looks terrible. So, you know, having read the notes and having a good idea of what's going on, um, being prepared. I mean, as I said, you know, we we, we know what's coming. So we pre-prepare the information packs that we're giving out to people. um, So we try and and tailor that information for the individual. Um, So, uh, you know, so we're not giving them kind of, you know, just kind of, blanket advice that maybe has no bearing on their own particular situations um, and we, we give them uh, we give all the inf- try and give everything that we tell them verbally we try and give them in writing as well so that when they go away um, and you know they've maybe just come up for air a few days later after recovering from or to some extent recovering from this 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 kind of body blow of a diagnosis um, that they can go back and they can they can kind of look with a maybe a, a slightly cooler head about what's been said to them and, and what's happening I think if I've got time, just very finally, yeah, I, I would sure. think the most important thing, I think, is trying to give people hope, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And I, it, I think sometimes doctors think, well, you know, what hope is there? I don't have any, I don't have any you know, magic medicine that's going to cure people. There's no, there's no real treatment that I can give them that's going to solve the situation. Um, sometimes I find that sometimes just explaining to people that, that, that most dementias move very, very slowly and... And even just telling people, listen, if we were to bring you back into our clinic in a year's time, we might not see a huge difference in where you are. That can be absolutely revelatory yeah. to some people. Mm-hmm. It, 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 that little bit of information can be can almost be life transforming. You know, yeah. they think, well, you know, I'll still be here in a year's time. and I'll still be doing this and I'll still be doing that, you know, and I've still got a life to lead. So we very much can't try to be proactive about about maximizing people's remaining abilities and trying to minimize the areas where they're having difficulty and uh, and really 
helping them to 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 face forward and in, into 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 what's ahead of them and, and and be proactive about that. That's lovely. It's a very hopeful note to to finish on, and um, I think that's really good advice as well, Matthew, that you've given for the healthcare professionals. So thank you very much for that. And I'd like to thank all of you for your time today. So generous of you to give your time up to come and talk to us. So well done on all the work you're doing, and many many thanks. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by Hidden Hearing, and we are very grateful for their support so that the lived experience of caring for someone with dementia is heard. To learn more about their work, please visit hiddenhearing.ie.